0: If you have your Bibles or scripture journals, then I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and Chapter 15. Luke and Chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 in our time together this morning as we continue uh, this incredible Gospel of Luke. (coughs) This is uh, perhaps one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. Okay, Luke 15, you will see why if you haven't already. Uh, we will be in Luke 15 for the rest of the month, and then in July we'll take a four-week break from Luke for our annual summer in the Psalms, okay? But today, Luke 15, verses 1 through 10, it'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. Let's read this together. Luke 15, starting verse 1. The Holy Spirit says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it, when he has found it lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, Seek diligently until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Whether or not you are someone who knows much about art history or paintings of any kind, the name Vincent Van Gogh is surely one you Familiar with, yes. Uh, Van Gogh was a Dutch post-impressionist painter who lived uh, from 1853 to 1890. Uh, After his death, he became one of the most famous and influential painters in Western art history. In a period of 10 years, he created about 2,100 pieces of art, including around over 800 oil paintings, most of which date to the last two years of his life. Now, if you know anything about Van Gogh, it's probably that he cut his ear off, cut his own left ear off. He wrapped it up and he delivered it to his uh, woman he was infatuated with. You probably also know him from one of his most famous paintings, like The Starry Night, which we'll show you in a second. And his self-portraits, which he did several of those, one of which actually has the bandage over his ear. Uh, one you may not know about is called the Church at Avors, which is a real church just outside Paris, France, and it still stands today. It became a tourist trap, which you could go visit if you wanted to, if you happen to be in France. Now, we're going to put that first one, the Church of Avors, up on the screen for you to see. As I was preparing this week, by the way, I was like, what if the power goes out again? Uh, <laughs> but it hasn't, and there it is, okay? This, this painting was complete about a month before his death, okay? It includes features that help us understand Van Gogh's struggles with the church and with religion. Well, you'll notice first the colors, Van Gogh's style, uh, his signature style, of course, like the, the way he paints the sky. You'll notice the lighting. Uh, this is the, um, some of the important things that we need to see about this. The foreground of the church is brightly lit by the sun, but the church itself sits in its own shadow. Van Gogh, who was writing to his sister describing this painting, said the church neither reflects nor emanates any light of its own. In a different letter to his brother Theo, he quoted Shakespeare's image from Henry V of the dark emptiness inside a church that symbolizes empty and unenlightened preaching, saying their God is like the God of Shakespeare's drunken Falstaff. But perhaps the most significant feature of the church is that it has no doors, No entrance can be seen whatsoever. This, many say, is to symbolize that the church is closed off to him. Van Gogh felt the church was closed off to him and to people like him, the poor, the odd, the peculiar. Overall, if you look at the church, it looks closed, dark, and unwelcoming. Consider the Starry Night painting, which is the next one we'll put up for you. This is the one, of course, if you've seen Van Gogh, this is the one you'll know him from. There is a church in that painting with the rest of the city. But it stands out compared to the other buildings. It is dark and silent, even though the houses in the town are warm and lit. You look at the spire of the church, it's needle sharp, touching a dark patch in the sky. The church is both dark and sharp, surely keeping with Van Gogh's problem with the church at the time that it was not at all what it was meant to be. Why was Van Gogh so critical of the church as he saw it? Part of it had to do with the fact that he actually pursued a life of vocational ministry, but he was denied. Well, why? Well, besides being an odd fellow himself, the powers that be in the church did not like that he associated with the poor. Especially the poor minors in town. The church became closed off to him and people like him. But he shows us in the church of Avours, the painting before this, that there are two paths available to us. You see those two paths? One that embraces the others, and one that embraces a dark, foreboding, cold and closed off religion, unwelcoming to outcasts. The kind of religion that would embrace a separatism, you could put the Luke graphic back up, that was closed off to certain people who sinned in particular ways, was the kind of religion that Pharisees and scribes in first century Palestine embraced. Theirs was a religion that had a temple and it had a synagogue uh, where people could gather, but like the church of Avours, they essentially had no doors for a certain people who they thought were unscrupulous or too sinful to be brought near to God. They sat, as it were, in a shadow, neither emitting nor reflecting light. They had no steeples, but they might as well have had a sharp spire that pierced the needy and the marginalized through their hearts. Michelangelo was a painter and sculptor who lived many years before Van Gogh, and one time uh, he was asked to comment on one of his sculptures by, one of, by his best student, Michelangelo, talking about the sculpture, said, it is magnificent, it lacks only one thing, life. The same thing could be said at first century temple and the synagogues that dotted the landscape, and even the religious leaders themselves, they look good on the outside, but they lacked one thing, life. This is what's at play in this chapter of Luke's gospel. It opens with this. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus as they were wont to do. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Now the rest of the chapter serves to answer this complaint from the religious leaders. And while they complain, Jesus turns them into the foil once again in order to teach what will turn out to be his most famous parable. So let's, let's explore the first two from verses 1 through 10. By looking at three points, and I'll just give it to you straight away, okay? Three points in verses 1 through 10. Problem, solution, response, okay? Problem, solution, response. So first, the problem. What's the problem? At this point in Luke's gospel, we are well acquainted, yes, with the religious leaders like Pharisees and scribes and lawyers. So far, we've seen basically nothing but negativity from them. They don't like Jesus. They don't like what he's teaching. They don't like that he's healing. They don't like that he doesn't fit into their mold of what they think a rabbi should be. And they completely miss that he's the Messiah that is promised all over the place in their Bibles. But one of their biggest problems with him services here in verses 1 and 2. What's the problem? It's that Jesus hangs out with the wrong kind of people. If we want to boil it down, that's the problem. Jesus hangs out with the wrong kind of people. But it's even more than that. Look what it says. They observed the wrong kinds of people being attracted to Jesus and they grumbled saying, this man. You see how they phrase that? That's a derogatory term. Here's the key words. He receives sinners and he eats with them. They want to know how Jesus can both be someone who is righteous and hangs out with people who are not. How can you do that? Whose side is Jesus on anyway? Is he on the side of people like them Who fancy themselves as holy and righteous, keepers of the law? Or is he on the side of the riffraff who who sin and are unclean and are at the bottom of society? Whose side is he on? In other words, is he with the religious or is he with the irreligious? Is he with the son who did everything he thought he was supposed to do? Or is he with the son who went out and blew his inheritance and hung out with pigs? This whole chapter is answering what Jesus came to do and how he approached ministry. This is why in verse three, just some G-wins for you, when you see it says, Jesus told this parable. The word parable is singular, even though he tells three separate parables in succession. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost brother. There are three parables, but they have the same basic message, the same basic message, which is lostness, and the same basic emotion, which is joy. Jesus is addressing both the religious and irreligious because they have the wrong, both of them, have the wrong views of how one is reconciled to God. Do you remember? Of course you do. When Pippin asked Treebeard whose side he was on in the war for the ring, Treebeard said, I'm not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. But there are some things, of course, whose side I am altogether not on, is what he said. Jesus is doing something similar here. The Pharisees are asking... Whose side are you on anyway? Our side or the side of sinners and outcasts? And Jesus says, in, in essence, what? Neither. Why? Because neither are on his side. What matters is not, okay, which side he is on. What matters for all people is, are you on Jesus' side? Tim Keller says, Jesus is both saying that both the irreligious and religious are spiritually lost. Both life paths are dead ends and that every thought the human race has had about how to connect with God is wrong. The Pharisee's problem wasn't just that Jesus was around sinners all the time. The problem was that he received, you see those words, he received them and he eats with them. Why would that bother them? Well, in this context, you know, to eat with somebody, you probably heard this before, eat with somebody and to receive them at your table was a sign that you accepted them. So when the Pharisees saw sinners were attracted to Jesus, and he not only did not tell them to go away, but he sat at table with them, they were incensed. How could Jesus do such a thing? Well, this chapter answers why he receives people on the margins. The religious leaders hated that Jesus did that. They they didn't understand at all. Uh, Not only did they not understand, but they were also irritated at the prospect of Jesus purposefully being near the undesirable. It angered them. The joy that sinners felt when they were received by Jesus was irksome. Have you ever been in a situation where you're trying to relax, or you're trying to go to bed, or otherwise enjoy yourself, and someone else is having like a party with loud music or fireworks, right, on the 4th of July or New Year's Eve, some other ruckus, right, and you become irritated by the noise? Does that happen to you? You wonder why they're being so loud, right? You just want to sleep. Or you just want to enjoy an evening of peace and quiet. Or you want to enjoy your meal. But people a few tables over maybe are being loud and they're laughing. You've been in a situation like this, yes? Someone is enjoying themselves and it bugs you. Right? One person's celebration can be annoying for someone else. Especially if they don't understand the reason for the party. That's how the Pharisees look at Jesus. He's partying with the ragamuffins and the religious leaders not only don't understand it, but it makes them angry. What would the Pharisees do? We can ask. With what would they do with tax collectors and sinners instead? Well, they didn't have that problem, did they? They didn't have a problem as to what to do or how to relate to them because sinners were not attracted to the religion of the Pharisees and the Scribes. There were churches with no doors, but that was fine with them because they didn't want them people anyway. They wanted sinners to stay away. And you say, well, the religious leaders were sinners too, right? And you'd be correct, but their sins, in their mind at least, weren't as bad as the real sinners out there. right? That's where the real trouble is. In the mind of the Pharisees, there were sinners, and there were sinners, right? Plus, the religious leaders did all their religious duties, made up for whatever sin they committed, right? But again, their sin wasn't as egregious as those filthy ones out there in the dregs of society. So what did they do? They sure didn't eat with them or receive them, I'll tell you that. Instead, the religious leaders practiced, and this is key for what we're gonna talk about, a separatist attitude. That was their attitude. Their tactic to reaching sinners is that they didn't. There was no concern for those on the margins. The religious leaders just wanted sinners to be far away from them. Keep them over there. Let them hang out with each other. They're happier that way anyway. We don't need their uncleanness near us. We'll stay over here with folks like us. They can stay over there with folks like them. And isn't this, that's how the world is supposed to be anyway? Plus, we wouldn't want any of their uncleanness on us, and we wouldn't want to ruin our reputation by fraternizing with the unscrupulous. What if people saw us? Well, here's the bummer, right? You Ready? Oftentimes we see that same attitude among the religious today. That separatist attitude is still alive as we speak. Am I wrong? Let's ask it another way, okay? Are churches today more apt to mimic the attitude and the posture of the Pharisees here or of Jesus? Do the most religious and respected people Go and hang out with the most vulnerable and those deemed unclean? Or do they typically tend to group together with people just like them? Like, if you were to ask any church if they wanted to grow, what would they say? There's no doubt that they would almost all say yes. But who do they want to grow with? Uh, That's the key, right? What sorts of people do they want to add to their numbers? All churches want to grow. But do they want to grow through reaching of the poor, the lame, the sick, the disabled, the broken, and the addicted? Or do they want to grow? Yes, but can't we get more people like us? They want to grow by reaching the margins or by reaching people who are their same race, economic status, hobbies and interests, politics, and those who are just as shiny and put together as they are. Do we say of people unlike us who drive hoopties, that's what we called them when I was a kid, and have dirty clothes and are covered in tattoos and piercing and need help and live in bad neighborhoods we wouldn't go to, that they have their own people that they can hang out with and we'll stay with our people. Is there any attitude less like Jesus than that? The biggest bummer of this text isn't that the Pharisees were separatists that looked down on sinners. The biggest bummer is that we can be just like them. The most religious now is then are just as prone to a self-righteous segregationism that doesn't go out and get the riffraff, but tries to their best to stay away from sinners, and we have endless justifications to do it. And if the riffraff did happen to show up to where we are, they should know their place, or they can leave. Am I wrong? I give you examples for days, but let me just give you one for time's sake, okay? My mentor's name is Jeff Johnson. And before I met him, he pastored FBC in Del Rio, Texas, which is a border town. Well, even though it was quite literally minutes from Mexico, like there's a point in Del Rio you can do this and you're in Mexico, okay? Okay. The church, when he got there, was a 100% Anglo. Well, my mentor was someone who took Jesus' word seriously and his example seriously. He started ministering to a Hispanic man and his name was Julio Gonzalez. He was covered in tattoos. He had them on his face. He had 666 on his forehead. On top of that, Julio spent half his life in prison for conspiracy to commit murder, no big deal, and for smuggling drugs. Most people probably would not go near him, would they? Most respectable Christians would not want to have anything to do with him. But Jeff did. Jeff didn't care that he was covered in tattoos. Jeff didn't care if he had a past. Jeff didn't care that he was of a different ethnic and social background as him. Jeff saw him as an image bearer of God who needed the gospel. And so he ministered to him, and guess what? Jeff got to lead him to Christ, and Julio was baptized. And this was the catalyst for the church finally reaching the border population. They quadrupled in size because of it. Now, you would think that would make everyone in the church excited. You know exactly what's going to happen next, right? Those who had been at the church for a while didn't like this growth because it was with the wrong kinds of people. So they had a vote of no confidence in my mentor. For, I quote, attempting to make it a Hispanic church. Now you tell me, who in that story looked like Jesus? And who looked like the Pharisees? Who went and sought wandering sheep? And who sat in their weird little group of people like us, content to see their community literally go to hell as long as they maintained the church they wanted? Who opened the doors, and who had a church without them. Now, how often are churches prioritizing appeasing and keeping the found rather than reaching the lost? How often are we trying to simply maintain the status quo because the biggest threat for many Christians is being uncomfortable? Keller, if you're not uncomfortable enough, Keller said this word, that is stinging. He said Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while often offending the Bible believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches. We tend to draw conservative, button down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated, or the broken and marginal, avoid church. That could only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to the younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. See, and the problem isn't just our incessantly grouping around an affinity. It isn't just that We want to keep in our homogenous group so that we can be comfortable. It isn't just that we naturally have a separatist attitude that makes us not only not reach out to those who are on the margins, but actively avoiding sinners. Those are problems, yes, but they aren't the only problem here. The other problem is that those who tend to be more religious and believe themselves to be more moral also can tend toward a posture of self-righteousness that believes their deeds are at least partially responsible for their favor with God. That is always and forever a danger, you realize this, of people who are very religious. See, we're about to get into these parables, okay? But let me point out something for you before we move on to our second point. Look at verse 7. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now this could be misunderstood. This does not mean that there are people who do not need to repent. That's not what it means. All are guilty before a holy and just God and of transgressing his righteous requirements. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone needs to repent to be reconciled to God. So the problem isn't that some need to repent and some do not. The problem is that some don't see their need to repent. The very religious may indeed feel that they have no need to repent because they're relying on some other source of justification, such as their heritage or race or wealth or status or perceived morality. So the one who doesn't recognize their need of what Luther called alien righteousness, of righteousness provided from the outside of ourselves, and therefore repent before God and receive the righteousness of Jesus, they're just as lost as the lost sheep in the parable. It's just they don't know it, you see? That's the problem with the elder brother in what we call the prodigal son parable, right? That's the rub. That's the wrong title. There are two sons who are prodigal, right? But one seems more prodigal than the other, (laughs) But just because it seems that way, it doesn't make it so. They're both lost. They're both trying to self-justify, but in very different ways. But they're equally wrong. So now we know what the problem is. Let's look at what the solution is. This is point number two. Point number two. The solution. So as the religious folks are disparaging Jesus... He launches into these three parables. I told you, you have the same basic point, okay? And they serve to critique the Pharisees and the scribes and those of their ilk. Now, notice how Jesus begins the parable, okay? He says, what man of you? That's significant, okay? What's he doing here? James Edwards explains. He says, framing the crux in the parable of, a, of the parable in the form of a question transforms an objective narrative into an existential dilemma, pulling hearers out of their seats and onto the stage. So by telling the story this way, the listener is being brought into the story as the shepherd. You see, the original hearers and us are supposed to put themselves in the story as the shepherd. And Jesus asks, what would you do if you were in that situation? You see, The other brilliant aspect of the parable is Jesus' choice of the main character. Obviously, everyone would be familiar with this picture, right? In this context, there was a lot of shepherds. But that's not what makes it brilliant. What makes it brilliant is that the hearer is invited to put themselves in the sandals of a shepherd. They're being invited to identify with one of the most despised and unclean professions there were. No, No one would make a shepherd the hero of a story... You might as well make the hero a Samaritan. And the Pharisees would include shepherd as a type of people they needed to stay away from. Okay, So says Jesus, if you're a shepherd, wouldn't you do what the man in this story does? The man had a hundred sheep. He's wrapping up his day. He's counting his sheep to make sure like he does every single night, make sure they're all there. But it turned out one of them's gone. What should he do? Should he write that one off on his taxes as a loss as it wandered around the wilderness, likely to fall off a cliff or drink some dirty water, get sick or become dinner for some predator? Is that what he should do? Or should the shepherd leave the 99 and go looking for that one sheep? Now, surely you know both that the Bible likes to compare people to sheep. You know this, yes? And... That sheep aren't the brightest in the animal kingdom. <laughs> you know this? The sheep is lost in part because that's what sheep can tend to do. And, and out in the wilderness, it's completely helpless. It's completely. A lost sheep, it can't defend itself. It can't provide for itself. A lost sheep isn't going to get its bearings, right, and know how to get back to the shepherd. Think of sheep as compared to dogs. If your dog gets lost, there's a chance it might just find its way back home, right? Haven't we all heard stories of like a dog is like across state lines and finds its way back home? Or, you know, in a different city and finding their way home like in Seinfeld when they kidnapped the dog. You remember that? Imagine if your dog was lost and you went looking for it. Then you find it, okay? And you shout, bandit or whatever, Fido, I've been looking all over for you. Come here, boy. That thought is going to come bounding, right? Come bounding towards you in excitement. And on top of that, you can say, hey, let's go home. And it will just follow you home. Sheep aren't like that at all. They will not find their way back to the herd on their own. If they did, it'd be an accident. But also, when a sheep gets lost, they'll give up. They'll just give up and lay down. That's why you notice the part of the parable, when the shepherd comes in looking, he finds it, he puts it on his shoulder. That's why he gave up. <laughs> It's like a walk. The point is this, okay? Recovery of the lost sheep depends entirely on the initiative of the shepherd. Let me repeat that. Recovery of the lost sheep depends entirely on the initiative of the shepherd. He noticed that it's lost. He goes, he risks, he finds, he picks it up, he puts it on his shoulders, he walks it home, he makes sure it's safe. All the credit is given to the shepherd. None to the sheep. The only thing the sheep contributed to being found was being lost in the first place. But what is the attitude of the shepherd when he finds the sheep? Is it joy? Isn't it joy? He rejoices when he finds it. He rejoices when he puts it on his shoulders. He even throws a party because of it. What he thought was lost perhaps forever has been found. That's a cause of celebration. Haven't you ever found something that was incredibly valuable to you that you had lost? Like you remember, I think everybody has this uh, experience. Remember how your heart dropped and you got a pit in your stomach when you realized it was gone? And then you remember the feeling of relief and joy when you found it? That's what's being conveyed here with the shepherd. Now Jesus is contrasting the attitude of the religious leaders to that of God the religious leaders see the lost as those to be kept at a distance they see them and feel no pity no empathy they only feel animosity those sinners deserve their lot according to them and the last thing they will ever do is go looking for the lost they're not going to risk for them they're not going to pick them up, they won't touch them, they aren't going to rejoice if they're found But Jesus is here saying, God is not like you. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. God looks at people you call sinners, like they're sheep who have wandered from their herd. They're vulnerable and easy prey for the world and the devil. They, like actual sheep, might not even realize they're lost. But God sees them with pity and love, and he takes the initiative to go after them, and he is tender and provides care for them. Now, you're waiting for me. This point is called solution. You're still waiting for me to give you the solution, aren't you? Well, here it is. We are all like lost sheep on our own. And thus, we are all like sinners and tax collectors. If we are found, it must be by the initiative of Jesus. Listen, we are at the same time utterly lost, helpless, and vulnerable, and infinitely valuable to God. Why in the world would the shepherd go and look for that one sheep? It must be because he places incredible value on it. Why else risk? Why else go? Why else leave the ninety-nine? And again, the sheep is lost because the sheep stray. We are lost because we embrace sin and cast off the shepherding of God. We, like sheep, want to, in ourselves, try to be shepherdless because we think we can lead ourselves. But we're out in the wilderness of the world. We're easy prey for the devil as we drink dirty water and just walk off cliffs. But What does God do? The shepherd... When he finds the sheep, you know, he doesn't go up to it and say, you stupid sheep. Why don't you go and wander off for And then kick it, give it a lecture. What does he do? He says, thank goodness I found you. I've been looking everywhere for you. He bends down, gently puts him on his shoulders, says, let's go home. And then he goes throws a lavish party. God in Christ has actually done that, don't you see when you realize that you are a lost sheep and are saved because of the initiative of the shepherd, then how is it that you can look at any other sheep in the whole world with anything but sympathy and love? In other words, if you are saved, it's because at one time you were a lost sheep who were found by Jesus. So how on earth can you ever look down on any other sheep? You're a sheep. You didn't save yourself. You weren't a better sheep than the other sheep. You were and are someone God values because that's who he is. You contribute nothing but lostness. So how can we look down on anyone? Would we chastise someone who is a lost sheep when we were lost sheep? We tell them to pull themselves up by their proverbial bootstraps and save themselves when we couldn't save ourselves? Our helplessness and lack of contribution to our finding is made even clearer in the parable of the lost coin, isn't it? What can contribute less than a sheep to its finding? I'll tell you what, an inanimate object. Isn't that the madness of what we talked about in our first point? The last people on earth. Who should be self righteous, biased, racist, separatist, haughty, snobbish, and egotistical are Christians. The difference between a Christian and a non Christian at the most basic level is that one is a found sheep and one is a lost sheep, but they're both sheep. You don't become a tiger or lion or eagle or something like that when you are found by the shepherd, you're still a sheep. Here's the sheep in the shepherd's flock. And why? Because of the shepherd, not because of you. Without the shepherd, you know what you'd be doing? You'd be drinking dirty water too. Well, my my dirty water comes from a crystal fountain. So what? It's still dirty. Well, the cliffs I walk off of are in the nice part of the countryside. So what? You're still walking off a cliff? Well, my wool is the, this color, yours is that. So what? It's still matted and filthy. This is crucial to understand the gospel, don't you see? You contribute nothing to your salvation. And the reason we get into weird silos and become self righteous and separatists is because we forget the gospel. What other explanation is there? We must never, ever, ever forget. That we all, like sheep, have gone astray, everyone to our own way, and that it was upon the shoulders of the shepherd that our iniquity was placed, that we are utterly and helplessly lost on our own, but so loved and so valued and so cherished that Jesus came and sought us and bought us and threw our helpless bodies on his shoulders to bring us home, and then heaven had a party and we were no more or less lost than the people we tend to look down on. Heaven isn't having a party, doesn't you just say this, for people who don't think they need to repent. But it is having a party for a sheep who were lost but now are found. So if we want to bask in our own record, look at all the good stuff I did. If we want to bask in the supposed goodness that we have or morality and say, I'm no sheep, I don't need rescue like some other people do, then we will, ironically, stay lost outside the party, wondering what all the ruckus is about. If we think that we and our fellow people, just like us, are the good and out there is the bad, then we'll be very outside of the kingdom ethic and missing the gospel completely. And those who are bad, well, they're closer to the kingdom than those who think they're too good for repentance, too good to admit they're lost. Too good to admit they need rescue. You remember what Steve Brown said? He said, "I used to think there were two kinds of people in the world: good people and bad people." Isn't that how most people kind of see the world? The good people were Christians, he said, and they went to church on Sunday and they're moral, good citizens. Bad people they skip church to mow their lawn, right, or watch football, drink beer, things like that. But then he says, "You know, I hadn't been long been a pastor." before I realized I was right about there being two kinds of people, but I'd been wrong about who they were. He said there are two types of people in the world, not good and bad people. The two types of people are bad people who know they're bad and bad people who don't. What's the difference between a lost sheep and a found one? That one was found. What's the difference between someone who has repented and someone who hasn't? The one who had repented, has realized their neediness and sin and beauty of Jesus and has turned to him. That's it. Del Ralph Davis said of this passage, the irony irony here is delightful. The Pharisees' grumbling is our gospel. Their dire accusation, our only hope. We become ecstatic over their damning words. Thank heaven for the gospel of the Pharisees. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. What better news could there be? Now, I'm going to give you some bad news, okay? You're like, just now? Bad news is this. We are all, apart from a move of God, on our own, lost and helpless and hopeless sheep who can neither make themselves found nor even make themselves findable. And if left to our own devices, we'll stay lost and we'll perish. Here's the good news. There's a shepherd places infinite value and worth and dignity on lost sheep. Not only that, but he himself goes and looks for them. He goes, he risks, he puts himself in harm's way and he dies for sheep. When he finds them, he rejoices, he picks them up, he carries them home, and he throws a lavish party so noisy that all the uptight people wonder what all the commotion is about. As those inside laugh with kind of belly laughs that make the self-righteous people that take themselves too seriously, ask, what's so funny? Jesus' arms are wide open for those who are desperate and repentant and thus come to him on his terms. Is that you? You will see something else cool in this text? Look, look uh, again when the woman finds her coin. You ever notice she throws a party that costs more than what the coin does? You ever notice that? She finds this coin and then spends more than what that coin is worth to throw a party celebrating that she found the coin. She sacrifices in order to celebrate finding that which was lost. But look at verse 10. There is joy, where is it? Before the angels. Before the angels. What's that mean? It means that God himself, God himself rejoices when one person who is lost is found and repents. It's not just angels rejoicing. God throws a party because someone who would otherwise be condemned forever has been brought home. Isn't that an awesome picture? Now, seeing yourself this way should change things, should it not? Who could have the posture of the religious leaders in light of these truths? It would take a hard heart indeed To see the truths found in the gospel and go on being self-righteous and arrogant and looking at some sheep as unworthy or not good enough or less than us. A heart like that, well, is it found at all? But to see one for who they truly are should make us adopt the posture of Jesus, which is this. Those who are found are to turn around and be like the shepherd, seeking the lost and continuing the mission of Jesus, which means... By implication, going after those who aren't like you. Going after sinners. Going after those on the margins. Going after those who no one else has time for. Going after those that respectable Christians would have their reputation tarnished for being around. Why? Because we need the gospel just as much as they do. Kelly Capic said this, God's love has a particular bent towards those most in need. By extending ourselves towards those who are vulnerable, we reflect and replicate the love that met us standing empty-handed before God. We are the poor, the wounded, the needy. We are the, when others look more poor, wounded, and needy than we, we may perceive them as inconvenience or threat. But if we neglect them in our talk about God, well, what more emphatic way is there to condemn ourselves? This takes us to our final point. Quickly, point number three, response. We'll call this response. Clearly, Jesus does not share the separatist attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. He is interested in befriending people the world and the religious folk deem undesirable regardless of what others may think, and why? Because he thinks they're valuable, and he wants to draw them to God. Because here's the thing about Jesus, right? He can at once make sinners feel loved and valued and not share in their sinful activity and then love them and call them to repent. If we are to be like Jesus, we must do the same sorts of things that Jesus did for the same reasons that he did it. Willing to risk like he risked, willing to be seen by uptight as hanging with the wrong sorts of people in order to win them for the kingdom. We are merely to be friends with sinners You understand, we are, but we are to call them to repent and give Jesus their allegiance. Jesus throws us, does he not, throughout his ministry, both love and holiness, mercy and justice, grace and truth, to be in the world but not of it, to welcome sinners without adopting or affirming their sin. You can do both as well. Daryl Bach, referring back to verses 1 and 2, says, they cannot believe, the Pharisees, that He is spending so much time receiving sinners and eating with them. Such table fellowship represents an absence of separation. They think righteousness demands. Jesus, however, argues that the call of God demands time be spent seeking the lost. The attitude expressed here is fundamental to the church's accomplishing of its mission. You see what Jesus is doing? He's telling the disciples and us that the lost who have been found are to turn around and become those who search for the lost. He's telling us we can either, haven't we seen Jesus give us two options with no third way? He's doing it here. You can either be like the Pharisee or you can be like him. If we say, well, I'm not self-righteous, I'm not someone who thinks they're better than others, I'm not trying to be a separatist, but I also don't go and seek the lost, we're like the Pharisees. You don't understand. I'm just so busy, you say. Well, then become less busy. You don't understand. I don't know any lost people. Well, then go find some. You don't understand. I have a reputation to uphold. Well, your reputation isn't worth the eternal lostness of those you can reach, is it? Can't we just have a bunch of church programs and they come here? I don't want to be uncomfortable going to the lost. Well, Jesus says to die to yourself, so just give it a whirl. We could go on, but our excuses fall apart even under the slightest of scrutinies. We are to go out and seek the lost and tell them about the beauty of Jesus. We are to go out to people who the world has given up on. People who don't look like us at all. People we have nothing in common with. People who our friends and families would be surprised we're associating with because if we don't, they may perish forever. It's someone else's job. No, it's yours. It's ours, each and every one of us. There is no get out of the Great Commission free card, my friends. You know, earlier I asked if you've ever lost something valuable and asked you to recall the kind of pit stomach you realized it was lost, the panic you sensed, the relief when you found it. Have you ever, on the flip side, ever lost something that you really didn't search for? Like, it wasn't all that valuable. It didn't seem worth the effort. If it turned up, it turned up. If not, that's fine. What's the difference? One thing you valued, so dil- you diligently searched. One thing you didn't, so you didn't search. It's that simple, right? We will search for what we value. If we don't go and search for the marginalized and the poor and the lame and the disabled and the outcast and those of different races and economic statuses, the answer to why is simple we don't value. If we don't even give the gospel to people we know or are related to and aren't searching the lost even close at hand, can we say we truly value them? The woman and the shepherd went to painstaking effort to find the coin and the sheep. The woman could have had, and it will turn up sooner or later, attitude like we might have when we lose an object in our house. She instead is tearing the place up to find a coin that others might think isn't worth the trouble, but it's worth it to her. So she searches and searches and searches until she finds it. And then she rejoices. We too must be ones who go and search and search and search for the lost. That is, if we value them. You've heard me all the time if you've been here long enough. you know I like to denigrate the what's called the attractional models of the church and the pragmatic models and the programmatic models. And I do it a lot. I'm going to keep doing it, okay? But one of the attractions of those models is you can just have a bunch of stuff at the church building or at your property and call it outreach, right? You could build a nice building or have events and assume unbelievers will just show up like it's Field of Dreams or something. Is that what Jesus did? Is that what the shepherd did? Is that what the woman did? Is that even what the forgiving father in the next parable did? He went outside to meet both sons, didn't he? He didn't wait, he went. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to view people the way Jesus views people and go out and search for them. Says Bach, Bach once again, Jesus pursued those cast outside or viewed with contempt with such vigor that the religious community of the first century questioned his character. But these parables explain why this pursuit meant so much to him. He knew that rescue was possible and love compelled him to rescue the parachute, should we not have the same attitude. We must realize the lengths that Jesus went to get to us. We have to remember that. We didn't deserve any of that. We wandered off. And, and you know, he would be eternally justified to say, you got yourself into this. Good luck out there. See if you could wander this way as we just walked off cliffs into eternal damnation. But is that what he did? God himself came down as a shepherd and sought us and bought us at the cost of his own blood. And he said, you are valuable to me. And he threw us on his perfect shoulders, the same shoulders that absorb the wrath of God that we deserve. And he carries us all the way home. And he is now calling us to go and seek the lost so he could do the same thing to them, so that heaven will rejoice even if the put-together folks grumble and mutter. God in Christ has told you that even if you don't feel valued by people, he values you. And he is telling us to go to people who similarly feel neglected and ignored and tell them God sees you, God loves you, and so do I. We can all be like Pharisees here, or we could be like Jesus. You know, the choice is ours. There's no third way. Let's start here. How about this? As we close. I'm going to ask for part- some participation here, okay? All right? Nobody, I already put a sign on the door. Nobody's going to confuse you with Pentecostals for raising your hand, okay? It's safe here. This is what I want you to do. Raise your hand. If you have a member of your family that isn't a Christian. Okay? Raise your hand if you have a friend who's not a Christian. Okay? Raise your hand if you have a neighbor who isn't a Christian. Okay? How many of you have a coworker who isn't a Christian? Okay? Raise your hand if you are involved in anything at all that isn't your couch or the church. Anything at all? Work? Extracurriculars? Don't be shy. I see y'all's Facebook posts. My friends, have you ever realized that the reason God has put you in those people's lives, you, and in that neighborhood, in that job, in your family, Even those extracurriculars that you do and you with your particular gifting is so that you will seek that which is lost. Would you be like him? Heaven rejoiced when Jesus put you on his shoulders and brought you into his kingdom fold. Would we give heaven more reasons to party as we tell fellow riffraff of our great and loving Shepherd? Would we tell other beggars where we got bread?